Welcome to the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast, a podcast created to inform patients, families, and caregivers about important health transformation topics. Since the 2001 Crossing the Quality Chasm Report by the Institute of Medicine, our nation's healthcare system has recognized its need to improve quality of care by way of six important aims that make healthcare safe, efficient, effective, patient-centered, timely, and equitable. But we cannot hope to cross this chasm and achieve these aims until we make fundamental changes to the whole healthcare system. All levels of this work require dramatic improvements from the patient's experience. So this podcast is dedicated to you, the voices most underutilized resource in healthcare, our patients' voices. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Natasha Washington, president and founder of ATW Health Solutions and sponsor for the Patient Partner Innovation Community. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to our Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. I am your host today, Desiree Collins-Bradley, and I'm super excited about the topic that we're going to discuss today. This is going to be a two-part series, guys. We haven't done this before with a guest, so I'm excited to welcome Ms. Deidre Gilbert to our podcast. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, before we get started, we always have to thank our sponsor and partner in this work. This episode is brought to you by ATW Health Solutions. ATW Health Solutions is a Chicago-based healthcare advisory and consulting firm that has gained national recognition for transforming healthcare delivery systems from ordinary to best-in-class. At ATW Health Solutions, we use a data-driven, evidence-based approach to make healthcare better by focusing on improving quality, safety, and most importantly, health equity in organizations and government agencies. Simply put, we create and implement innovative solutions for the right problems and the right people. So we're just going to jump right on in, right on in. So, you know, I want to, I know you, our listeners, um, some may know you, some may not. But I want to take a moment and let you kind of introduce yourself to your to our listeners and tell us a little bit about you, Ms. Gilbert. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, it's so much to know. <laughs> uh, it is so much to know. But uh, since we're talking about the health, I can say that I'm actually the national director of the National Medical Malpractice Advocacy Association. And uh, I created that 11 years ago as a result of you know my daughter being the victim of medical malpractice. And wow. so, you know, I went to Prairie View. I have a master's degree in educational administration. I taught 26 years. I have a bachelor's degree in political science and press communications. And uh, as I said, I went to Prairie View and that's where I graduated from. A Houstonian, been here all of my life, grew up in South Park and ended up in staying in the Hiram Clark area where my mother still resides since 78. And so, um, 
my husband has moved me to, which was used to be called Sienna Plantation, <laughs> is now Sienna. <laughs> yes, we're politically yeah. correct now. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's called Sienna now. So I feel just a little bit better. <laughs> but that's who I am. You know, now also do uh, work uh, with veterans. And so we mm -hmm. do work with veterans and I, I work with another nonprofit where we help veterans find employment. And so that's oh, wow. what Deirdre is. Uh, oh, wow. You are a Renaissance woman. So, you know, in this first part of the series, we really want to talk about the Malpractice Association. And I want to, you know, because I will say a few years ago, I had no idea that your organization existed until someone told me about it. And I was just like, wow. And then I start working in like, healthcare advocacy. And I hear all of these egregious, I'll say, errors that happen to patients. And they're just like, they go off into the abyss and not know there's nowhere for them to go to really seek health and resources and just really know what to do. So I want to kind of take a pause and let you kind of explain to our listeners exactly what the association is and does mm -hmm. and kind of like your family's journey of how you got there to start the organization. Okay. Well, basically, uh, the National Medical Malpractice Advocacy Association, it's a nonprofit organization. And we basically do education and activism. Uh, advocacy is uh, our main goal and making sure that uh, throughout, actually, patient advocacy throughout the whole entire United States, we're the only organization of its kind that was actually created for those citizens of the state and initially Texas that were harmed by medical error. We had found out that there was no organization anywhere on behalf of the patient. There were always organizations that were protecting uh, the hospital systems or the doctors, but there was mm. no one that was talking to the patients or their families who were going through this process whether it was just to talk or, you know, for mental health or giving some sort of consultation or even mm -hmm. trying to get them resources where maybe they, we can put them together with a attorney if yeah. it ended up with litigation. But we've helped hundreds of victims across the country in nursing home abuse, medical negligence. Uh, we talk about the 10-day rule that many may not know about. And, and just recently, we've talked about several people uh, that's related to the COVID-19 related issues. So we've mm. been involved in some cases with that. We've uh, written numerous complaints on hospitals, nursing homes. And also we have two lobbyists that we have never had before. And how that actually came about was there were several attorneys in different states that did medical negligence, medical malpractice law, right? However, they mm -hmm. didn't have the resources that they needed or they couldn't actually, I'm going to say advertise. Yeah. So they came to me and they were like, you know, we want to, to get involved. We want to be able to do some sort of legislation. And they created what we call their own chapter organizations of attorneys. So we have two groups. We have one in Louisiana and Virginia. So okay. I'm real excited because I mean, it's the first time ever that there's been people on the side of the patient. 
So yeah. those lobbying forms, we were real excited about that because they were instrumental in campaign ads actually recording the tort reform and bills mm-hmm. that would affording relief to the mostly severely injured citizens of the state. So mm-hmm. I'm real excited about that. The organization itself became, I'm going to say, came into existence as a result of me losing my daughter due to medical malpractice. In 2011, my daughter Jocelyn was, I'm going to say she died, but in actuality, when we looked at the circumstances, I'm going to say that there was purposeful things that happened that actually caused her death. And my daughter, I'm going to say she had some disabled capabilities. She was born with a very rare syndrome called CHARG, C-H-A-R-G-E. And mm-hmm. I was back in the 1980s when they didn't know what charge was. And, and so mm-hmm. now it's not really a syndrome, but it's more of an association because those mm-hmm. letters actually mean something that didn't develop. And so my daughter was uh, born with this. And usually children born with charge syndrome usually do not live as infancy. And okay. most children who do live by the age of five, They've usually had 30 to 40 surgeries. My daughter had over 120 surgeries in her. 120 surgeries she had had in her lifetime. And she survived. She was 22 years old. And so she defied all the odds of what they said that she would not do. They said she would never walk. She would never talk. She would never be able to eat because her esophagus wasn't connected to birth and this was narrow. But this was what actually was the cause of her death. So I take her to the doctor or or to a hospital. I pick her up because her school said that she she was eating a corn dog and the corn dog got actually lodged in her esophagus, not in in the throat, but in the esophagus. And um, Mm -hmm. she was breathing. Uh, it wasn't in her windpipe, so so uh, she was talking, but she was crying. And mm-hmm. I just picked her up and took her to the nearest hospital. And normally, uh, the doctors who had been taking care of her for 22 years had decided that they would take care of her for the rest of her life. And for, for some reason this day, I had just decided, you know, uh, let me just drop off because she's crying. She's in the she's sitting in my car and she's she's down on the floor and she's in pain. Well, mm-hmm. within 20 minutes of the entry, we go in. They said they didn't have a doctor. The comeback said they did. And within 20 minutes of her entry, my daughter was gone. Now, um, I walked in and she was she was kneeling on the bed uh, when I walked out. And, you know, she grabbed me and she says, Mama, help me, please. Because, you know, as children, they know that Mommy's going to help. And. And she knew that I've always done that. And actually those were her last words. And actually it also was a part of a book that I wrote Mm. called Mama Help Me Please, because that was Mm. the last words that she had spoken. Well, in that particular instance, when I walked back into the room and they never did take her to surgery or into the operating room, they had her down in the emergency room. And at that Mm -hmm. time, I really wasn't thinking because I didn't think that what she had was that serious because she had been through things before. 
when I walked into the room, my daughter was swollen. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't moving. And I didn't know what was wrong, you know, but I know my daughter had 120 surgeries. And pretty much after all of the surgeries, as she got a little older, she would wake up immediately and want to come. Mm -hmm. Well, this didn't happen. And so the doctor that did the surgery was, he was supposed to have been doing an endoscopy. He disappeared. I never saw him again. And another Hmm. doctor comes in and says he's taking over the case. And, you know, I'm, again, as a mother, you you know, things are going so fast. I'm not really concerned at this point because I don't really know what's going on. But the doctor says that he went to explain to me, he says, you know, your daughter has something called where he says it's usually from a gunshot wound. And I'm like, she didn't didn't get shot and (laughs) abdominal compartment syndrome. And I says, well, he says, and you can get it two ways, either from forced trauma, like in a car wreck or Mm-hmm. Like from a gunshot wound. And, I, and he started laughing. He says, well, we know she's not from a gunshot wound. I said, and he says, and usually you get a perforation. So I said, well, how did she get a perforation? Well, anyway, he goes from there and he says, well, no, 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 no. I don't think she has a perforation. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to do a test. So they did a CAT scan. Come back. He tells me nothing's going on, right? He leaves. He tells these nurses for to try to give my daughter an enema or something. And for three hours, he was gone. Three hours later, he decides he wants to come back to me and tell me that they need to do some sort of emergency surgery because if they don't, her organs are going to shut down. Mm. And I agreed to the surgery. He said it was yeah. going to take like 45 minutes. It took four or five hours later. We oh, didn't know what was going on. And um, we had no idea. So basically the point after, after this was, they roll her into an ICU unit. And when we walked in the room, we thought we were at some sort of bloody scene. Mm. Um, my daughter was in pools of blood. They had her in this little pep, this, this heating papoose thing. Her foot mm-hmm. was hanging out of the papoose thing. And the bells were ringing and coming and the nurse was running in and out. And so we're just there. And finally, my mom comes and she 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 kind of opened it up. And when we opened it up, she was like bleeding from every offices of her body, her eyes, the ears, the nose, everything. And for seven hours, we watched my daughter do that. And we decided, you know, we were tired. So we kind of stepped out. As soon as we stepped out, they called Code Blue. We knew instantly what was going on from there. Uh, some lady was standing at the door and she said she was from the medical examiner's office. And at that time, you know, I was, I was gone. I was, I was distraught. I was having, you know, yeah. I, I didn't know what else. My mom was trying to talk to the lady and they said, well, you know, anytime somebody uh, dies within 24 hours, we have to do an autopsy. So yeah. I leave. And the next day they tell me, you know, uh, they claimed that my daughter choked. And I said, excuse me? Mm. I said, no. And this is what they were trying to say as the autopsy. I said, no, my daughter did not choke. I said, yeah. you don't bleed from choking, right? Yeah. And if yeah. and yeah. if you do, I said, um, we went in on Valentine's Day. And I said, how do you choke until the next day? Exactly. And so from there, 
I asked for an autopsy and she comes back and she says, well, we didn't do one. And I said, well, how did you all come up with your findings? And she said, yeah. the hospital just put it on the paper and told them what she had died from. And normally when a person is not a victim of uh, sexual assault, that mm-hmm. they don't do an external examination, which I did not know. They don't do mm-hmm. an, a regular autopsy. So I said, okay, they only do an external examination. So I yeah. said, well, I tell you what, if you don't, I'm gonna call the police. I said, cause something's wrong. Well, mm-hmm. they did go back and do it. When she came back, they said that she had six sponges left in her abdomen. She had two, she had three perforations. She oh, was septic. Okay. She was totally brain dead. She had peritonitis, all of this. And from there, we could do absolutely nothing with that. Mm-hmm. So from that mm-hmm. experience, I had no idea what I was in. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I didn't even, I had never heard of tort reform. I don't even remember about voting for it or whatever, whether it was on, you know, a ballot and mm-hmm. I voted for, I don't remember that, but mm-hmm. I had no knowledge of what I was even in. Explain to us what's tort reform, because there may be a lot of listeners that may not know that as well. Yeah, tort reform is actually just a, it's a law that protects doctors from being sued. Back in 2003, doctors were claiming that there were frivolous lawsuits, and you may have heard of that. And they were saying Mm -hmm. that there were too many frivolous lawsuits. They were being sued and that doctors were going to leave the state and they needed protection. So they did this big ad campaign overnight and they, they filled the public's head. They did it all on television. They filled the public's head that this was what was going on. However, when the people actually went to vote for the tort reform, it was stated that they were actually voting for caps. So they were capping how much it was that a person could actually sue for a person's life. So they capped it at $250,000. And this was where tort reform actually began. Now wow. I was I was unaware to tell you the truth what even tort reform was. I didn't even know that that was a part of what I was looking at as it related to my daughter. It took me about six months before I even knew what I was looking at or you know what this was. And once I sort of I started going through her medical records and. Just mm-hmm. prior to her death, I had went to medical coding and building school, which okay. was very instrumental in helping me be, you know, to read her yeah. medical records. I'm sure looking at the records, it's like, unless you're used to reading that, it's like Greek. Right. You know, it, it, right. it, it really is. It is. And so, you know, God had actually just prepared me for that road. I didn't know why. You know, I don't yeah. even know why I went to take medical coding and billing. And I think yeah. it was yeah. basically because she had been so sick or something. I don't know. And I wanted mm-hmm. to get into a business um, where I could work from home to take her to, you know, to do what I needed to do. But you know how yeah. busy uh, they yeah. can keep us. Right. And oh, so. Yes, um, <laughs> so just not knowing what tort reform was and then eventually 
you know, I found out what it meant and I contacted mm-hmm. an attorney and I could not get an attorney to take my case. And wow. that's when we found out how the bill itself that they created was not actually what we knew it to be. So mm-hmm. there were so many amendments that they had put into the bill or so many stipulations. So you had to have an expert witness to testify against another doctor. And mm-hmm. this is where we were, were unable to do. But mm-hmm. I came across some criminals, to tell you the truth, that were yeah. uh, attorneys and the doctors. My the attorney that I finally got, had he went and got a expert who actually was a employee of the hospital that I was suing. Oh, that's a conflict of interest. Absolutely. And I had no idea that Mm -hmm. that they were all hooked up with this together. And he, and so the expert wrote a report, like, I mean, maybe three or four sentences. And Mm -hmm. he made claim that none of the doctors were responsible for my daughter's death. So the, like I said, the first doctor was the one that started the derangement of, you know, yeah. of causing it. But the second doctor, who was his friend, was trying to cover up from him. And while he was doing surgery, he actually was operating on a dead person. My daughter was already gone. Oh, my goodness. And mm-hmm. they were only doing, they were only having her, they were they had her on ventilator, um, but in actuality, they were also giving her some sort of medications or something that kept her heart pumping because yes. what they were trying to do and what I found out later on is that once a person is actually ventilated, that you, you become an automatic organ donor. And my, many people don't know that. No, I didn't know that either. Yes, and it's even a part of the COVID is that once these people are actually uh, intubated, they become automatic organ donors. And so they were actually trying to get my daughter's organs. And they went so far to even call the funeral home and said that I had told them that they could get her organs. And I had Mm. never approved of that. And so it was a lot of, underhanded things that were going on with our system and the system basically got worse Mm -hmm. it it, it ended up being worse than I thought it was and there were so many attachments to our legislative leaders because we had legislative leaders that were also employees of the same hospital who had also were responsible for creating the tort reform And there was a lot of conflict of interest. The agencies that we were looking for, your health and human services, your joint commission, Mm -hmm. all of those organizations that we thought were helping us Mm -hmm. actually had somebody sitting on the board or either was a part of that entity that was also a part of the hospital. Mm We simply meant that wherever I was going to try to get justice there was none no justice there was Mm. no justice because the ceo of the hospital actually was a board member of the joint commission Mm. and then the state representative was also 
appointed by the governor to be over the health and human services, who was also mm. an employee of the hospital who also wrote the tort reform. Mm. So it was like this, Ooh. it was like this square. And yeah, it's still like, a like Bermuda that. Triangle. Yes. <laughs> and it's <laughs> like actually still triangle. like that. And in actuality, mm. it's still like that. And this is the reason why we're having problems is because we have people who are working against us that we thought mm-hmm. is supposed to be working for us. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that's why I think it's, it's so important that people know that your organization is out there so yes. that if they are going through, whether that's a medical error, loss, mm-hmm. a patient safety incident, that they know that there is some place that they can go. I mean, some hospital systems that I've heard, you know, that, they work with the patients and they have policies in place and there's a quite few, many of them that do not. Yes. And they will send the patients into the abyss, wipe their hands with it. And, you know, the patients are on their own to yes. navigate this web of, of, uh, I would say tangleweed. Right. So yes. where can, before we, I say, before we go into, Cause I want to ask you a little bit of insight around patients and providers and yes. um, what they can do to be proactive, but where can they find your organization? What's the website, the phone number, if they're listening to this podcast mm-hmm. and they have a family member, community member, neighbor, coworker, somebody that they know that needs this assistance, where can they send them for the help from you? So they can go to NMMAA. So that's Nancy, Mary, Mary, appleapple.org. And uh, that's where they can find the website. That's where you can find all the information you can find out about the initiatives that we're involved in Uh, and just see what we do. We also Mm -hmm. have a membership plan if those that are interested in becoming a member of the organization to help the organization out so that we can Mm -hmm. continue to do our advocacy that is also there. And Absolutely. uh, you can also find our phone number there and uh, our email address on that same site. All of that okay. is there. And uh, I mean, this is what we do. And so mm-hmm. basically what I do, like I said, we try to connect the dots or connect the resources. And it's just been very instrumental because like I said, when I went through this, there was absolutely nothing. And Mm. then right after that, I created a blog talk show that was called Life. If you go Mm -hmm. to the blog talk, you can Google my name and there's a whole bunch of shows and it's called Life Radio Show. And that's when I actually start meeting people over Mm -hmm. that particular uh, platform, about 30,000 people that were going through the same thing that I was going through. And that's when I realized that what we were talking about was not just, you know, something that was sporadic, but this was a serious issue. And Mm -hmm. still to this day, we still haven't gotten the type of attention that we need for this. Because it's still going on. Yes. You know, the thing about it is, and and this is going to sound very cliche, but I think there's such a large population of patients, patient advocates that just really don't know. Like if you know better, you do better, right? Mm -hmm. 
So I want to take a pause and ask you, you know, thinking about the patients, you know, Mm -hmm. what can they do to be proactive if they feel there's been an injustice or medical error incident with their care? What can they do to be proactive? What advice would you give them? Well, what I was telling them at first is you're going to have to be quick, Mm -hmm. even though you may be going through it, you're going to have to sort of block that out. And, and start working on whatever it is that you need to do quickly, which means that it may be having to get your medical records without them, mm-hmm. you know, knowing what you're doing, just yeah. getting your medical records. I would say to also don't wait, make a medical board complaint. We do have on my website, if you go to what what do we do, there is a medical okay. board complaint assistance uh, thing there. If you fill okay. that out, we can help you know, file the medical board complaint. And we are working with a lady named Michelle. Her name is Michelle Mm -hmm. Montserrat. She's with Consumer Mm -hmm. Watchdog, who will actually assist them with uh, filing those medical complaints against those doctors, because that's going to be like a first step. I would even go so far sometimes, and it, it may depend on what it is, if it's real egregious, Mm-hmm. I would just even file with the police. Okay. A lot of times the po- police will say, well, that's a, that's a um, civil case, but mm-hmm. that's okay. You know, you tell them, look, I just need to put it on file anyway. That's right. Because you can use this if it becomes where we can find that that doctor has a history mm-hmm. of this type of behavior. Then, yes. We, you know, we're going to have to start going after these doctors no longer for civil, but for criminal actions, mm-hmm. especially that's, if they find the out. Gonna stop. Mm-hmm. That's the only way it, yeah. you know, it will stop. And then when we're talking about the providers, so doctors, right? So we our listening pool is very diverse. So we have patients who tune into the podcast, physicians that tune into the podcast, hospital leaders, government leaders. What advice would you give those providers, those physicians that are listening to this podcast? What advice, because you've been through this, what advice would you give them when engaging their patients? Meaning in that incident, you come into the ER, what would you have liked to see go differently from the doctor? Well, I'm going to say this, that the behavior that I saw, I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. So that was the, you know, that was very rare. I okay. had uh, doctors, I would always say for a doctor to listen to, to the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in the, I'm going to say in this new era of doctors, mm-hmm. we have a, we have some different people. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know where they're coming from, but um, <laughs> they're not like the doctors of past. Times mm-hmm. that you know that we used to have that would sit with you and I know that they're busy and things are going on but not listening and if there's a doctor who does not listen I just suggest that you find somebody else that will mm-hmm. if you right. are you know if you're not having a, a good time at the hospital find out who's over that particular division you know, who, what supervisor or whatever is over that person to let that person know, look, I'm coming in here and I can't get what I need. 
when I went in there, when I went into the hospital, I didn't have a problem per se with getting into the system. It was the fact that the system began to hide evidence yeah. mm-hmm. once they found out that an error had occurred. Mm-hmm. Instead of them being honest with me mm-hmm. as to what mm-hmm. happened, they decided that they were going to cover up yeah. what that doctor had done. When I found that out, you know, after six months or so, when I'm, I'm finding out as a parent that <clears throat> a mm-hmm. hospital system and doctors were literally covering up uh, harm that was done to patients and that they would go through that length, not only to cover that up, but to falsify medical records. That's mm-hmm. very devastating to a parent because Absolutely. I didn't get any, you know, from their on, they were ready to just, you know, it was all about them getting, you know, staying safe or not being sued. Mm-hmm. I would say to, you know, there are so many providers, and this is what I found out along the way, that there are many providers who want to speak out. And there are many mm-hmm. providers who wanted to, uh, even nurses who wanted to speak out. However, the hospital systems go after them. Mm-hmm. And they are then targeted for just saying something. Mm-hmm. So that silence that I heard, I wanted them to speak up, but nobody spoke up. But it wasn't mm-hmm. until after I really learned how the system works that many people, you know, many of these doctors and nurses have their hands tied. And then, and then I, and then too, I say, how could you just look and watch and not mm-hmm. say something? And maybe yeah. they did, you know, maybe they did say yeah. something, but I didn't know whether or not they did or not. Uh, yeah. But the administration, and because they're trying to save face and trying to keep their appearance up, that they did not let this come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't a good thing for me, you know, So I would say that to speak up, and I know that their jobs are on the line, and I know that this is where they're, they were worried about that their jobs are on the line, that they're not, you know, if I say something, something's going to happen. And this reminds me, and I I think you may have heard of Dr. Christopher Dunch, who was Mm -hmm. that doctor in Dallas, right? So one of the attorneys of our organization who helps us out, which is Kay Benway, she was instrumental in getting that mm-hmm. doctor off the streets. But it was, it took like an act of God and, right. you know, to get this man off the street, even though his colleagues were telling people, you know, yep. telling the administration that, look, this yes. man is dangerous. For a while. It took For a, a while. long time. And yeah. even if you watched mm. the movie and the documentary that came out, right, you saw where the mm. nurses were like telling the administration, but the administration was looking like he was making, he was bringing in money. And mm-hmm. this was the same thing with the, the two doctors in my daughter's case. These doctors were heavy hitters. They were bringing a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So hospitals overlooked 
at the first doctor that I'm speaking of, yeah, he had a 10-year history of drug and alcohol abuse. Wow. And he still does. Matter of fact, he can no longer practice in Texas, but yeah. he's in Arkansas. And since then, I've had contacts with an attorney who's called me. He's killed three people since then. Oh, my goodness. So that's so we need. And that has reform. a lot to do. Yeah. Well, that has a lot to do with the Texas, Texas with the medical boards. So the yeah. medical boards, again, we have a bunch of agencies, Desiree, that are mm-hmm. supposed to help us. But they are sort of like useless. They have mm-hmm. no power. They have, it's like, they have an entity here, but what we do is we'll let them talk to you, but we're not going to give them enough power to get rid of do something. (laughs) Right. Right. So we just like, well, what's your purpose? So they're paying people just to sit and listen, but they're not giving them any power to say, you know what? You're dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. That has to come from use, you know, suffering and struggling and trying to figure out an attorney who don't want to take the case or. You know, I don't know, but this is where we are right now. So what I say to providers is, you know, do no harm, you know, basically do no harm. You know, I don't, I don't think that's, that's even being taught anymore. I think it's being taken out. You know, I've talked to some people who have actually have been into the medical, going like to medical schools, actually Mm -hmm. dropped out, who has stated that. They're not teaching this empathy. Mm-hmm. They're not teaching that mm-hmm. anymore. So what we're getting now may be some dangerous individuals who are being taught to be mm-hmm. dangerous. Yeah. And we, wow. need to, we need to start talking and seeing, you know, we need that change. Mm-hmm. We need we need a it's, whole yeah. oh, we need, <laughs> makeover. See something, say a makeover is yes. right. So yes, you know, I we we're gonna continue our conversation in segment two, but I want to close this first segment with you received a pretty prestigious award. I heard, I and I would like you to share with our listeners what was that award you received, Miss Gilbert? Oh wow, it was the Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award. So, wow! Yes, so I'm so excited. It was for my work as it relates to civil rights and social justice issues and uh, my fight uh, that I've been doing for for since 2011, working with for those that have been harmed by medical mm-hmm. error. So I was nominated and received the award and you can go online and see my little, I have the everything, <laughs> the medal and the big thing and the big, all of that. And it's just, it was just, it was just nice to know that my work has been appreciative, you know, to the general public and to the world. Yeah. And I'm helping those that can help themselves. Yeah. And, you know, it's inspiring to me because um, it's like you took your pain and you turned it into purpose. You know, sometimes I think we all go through things in life, but you could either be better or you could be better. And, you know, I am inspired by you took the loss of your daughter. Her her death was not in vain. And others have avoided, I would say, issues and errors. And because of all the work 
that you are putting in and continue to do. So for that, you know, thank you. We appreciate you you. coming on this podcast and talking to us. We are going to continue our conversation in part two. So for all of you that are listening, I urge you to tune in to part two of our series with Ms. Gilbert. And as always, guys, you know, be engaged. Follow the PPIC community online at atwhealth.com.